right, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 16. We're putting in at verse 24, and we're going to finish the chapter and get into chapter 17 down to verse 8. Matthew 16, verses uh, 24 through the end of the chapter, and then chapter 17, 1 through 8. The topic, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. The title of our message, Finders, Weepers, Losers, Keepers. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to sit under the teaching of your word. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so, Lord, I pray that anything I say would not detract from his uh, desire, Lord, to bring your word powerfully to all of our hearts, to reveal Jesus uh, a little bit more clearly than we've ever seen him before so that we could share him with others, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I had not heard of Berkshire Hathaway. Have you? How many of you know of Berkshire Hathaway? Some of you are smart. I thought it was Anne Hathaway's father, but it's not. Uh, It's not a person at all. It's an American corporation headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska. It oversees and manages a number of subsidiary companies. The company wholly owns Geico, BNSF, Lubrizol, Dairy Queen, Fruit of the Loom, Hellsberg Diamonds. It owns half of Heinz and an undisclosed percentage of Mars Incorporated, not the planet, but the candy bar, uh, and has significant minority holdings in American Express, Coca-Cola, Wells Fargo, and IBM. It's a giant. But according to Fortune 500, in 2013, it was only the fifth most profitable company in the United States, number 18 in the world. The most profitable U.S. company was Walmart, of course, because uh, it's all profit. Uh, rank, <laughs> ranked second in the world behind Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company. On the loss side, JCPenney had the worst stock performance of any Fortune 500 company. I have to admit, I contributed to that. I don't think I even set foot in JCPenney last year. Did you? How many of you shop at Pennies on a regular basis? God bless you. God bless you. I see that hand. (laughs) Profits and losses of a different kind are the subject of our verses. In verse 26, we read, for what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In business, it's not uncommon to be asked to present a profit and loss statement, also called a P&L. What if you were asked to present a spiritual P&L? I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, how does your P&L read? And number two, how will your P&L reward? First of all, how does your P&L read? Uh, Let's take a couple verses here in chapter 16. Jesus had just revealed to his 12 disciples that he would be rejected by Israel's leaders, suffer at their hands, and then be crucified. He would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to await his second coming. Between his first coming and his second coming, he would be building his church on the earth. These first disciples would make other disciples, so on and so on, up until the Lord calls his church home. It seems appropriate, therefore, to talk a little about what it means from the Lord's perspective to be one of his disciples, and that's what he does in these verses. Now, Greg Laurie made popular the statement, all disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. It captures what we see all the time among Christians. There are those whose commitment to Jesus seems, for lack of a better word, uncommitted, Others teach what has been labeled lordship salvation. 
Their position could be summarized by saying, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Now, I understand what they're saying, but we want to be biblical, and biblically speaking, Jesus can be Lord of aspects of my life while I withhold other areas of my life from his control. We know that to be true, I think, in experience, but we also know it to be true from the Bible. For example, I could cite Romans 12.1 as a proof text that at least sometimes believers do not settle the lordship of Christ in their lives until some time after they've been saved. Paul told those who were already believers at the Church of Rome Present yourself living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Apparently, they were not doing that at the time. They were believers, but they were not presenting themselves living sacrifices, uh, or Paul wouldn't have told them to. James told believers in chapter 4, verse 7 of his epistle, submit to God. Apparently, they were not doing so at the time. In fact, Any of the Bible's many exhortations to greater dedication indicate that not all genuine believers are always committed disciples, at least not in every area of their life. But we want to be, do we not? Sure we do, and here is how. Here is how we do discipleship. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Right away, we don't like this. I think it was Vince Lombardi who said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. That's great. Think about that for a minute. Or I think it's popular now to say second place is first loser. Uh, And and so as a culture, we don't like losing, even though we talk about being good sports and being good losers. The desire to follow Jesus by denying yourself and taking up your cross and the commitment to lose your life is best brought into focus by first answering the questions posed in verse 26. Before we talk about denying ourselves and all of that, we need to know why it's a good idea to do that in the world in which we live. And so we ask and answer these two questions. Number one, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The soul is referring to the real you, the part of you that is eternal and will exist beyond this life. Some of you might remember the very first MasterCard priceless commercial. A young boy and his dad were attending a baseball game. How many Dodger fans here today? Giant fans? All right. This young man and his uh, father were attending an angel game. (laughs) I don't want to have a fight. The narrator says, two tickets, $46. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $27. More like $270 now, but anyway... One autographed baseball, $50. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Kind of burned into our memory. And the ad works, and it's worked for decades because we understand that things pertaining to the soul are precious when compared to things of the world. Loses his soul can apply to both non-believers and believers. If a person rejects Jesus Christ and pursues only the things of the world 
at the final judgment, they're going to find that they've lost their soul to an eternity in hell. If a Christian loves the world rather than the Lord, they will suffer the loss of reward when they stand before him. The question supposes you, by yourself, gained the entire world. It all belonged to you and everything in it. It would still pale in comparison to the value of your one soul. Since the whole world gained cannot substitute for a soul, how can any lesser worldly pursuit or passion be worth my greatest efforts? I should always prefer things that are spiritual, for they alone are precious. And if that's the case, I should be spending a lot of my time, talent, treasure, ability, effort on things spiritual rather than on things material. Question number two, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, this literally reads in redemption for his soul. If he had the whole world to give and would give it, it would not be a sufficient ransom to save your soul at the end. This is definitely looking at the non-believer. It reminds me of the rich man and Lazarus described in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's chapter 16 by Jesus. After he died, the rich man in torment would have given everything to save himself, but it was too late. The Lord is to be preferred to the world. We get that. But how do we approach the world while awaiting eternity? How do we do this discipleship thing? Well, basic discipleship is described in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, bearing in mind we've put the world in its proper perspective, it is less than uh, discipleship. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. If I don't desire to come after Jesus, which means to follow Jesus after answering those two questions, there's really something seriously wrong with me. If I can't get that perspective, then, then I'm, I'm not being honest with myself. On a more positive note, Jesus' life was the richest, purest, fullest living of all time. He walked on this earth in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. His was the most profitable life ever lived on every level. Following Jesus is how life is meant to be lived. He says, first of all, you deny yourself. Now, denying yourself isn't the same as self-denial. Uh, it, it sounds kind of weird, you know, but, but it's true. People always think of the Christian life as one of self-denial. I'd like to do some things, but God says I can't, so I don't, even though, golly, they're so much fun, but after all, I'm a Christian. Sometimes, and I don't think people mean to do this, but when they're asked to give their testimony, you want to sound like the Lord really saved you. And so you have a tendency to really beef up the bad parts of your testimony. And if you're not careful, it can almost sound to the audience like you kind of miss some of that stuff. I used to do this, and, and man, I did it more than anybody. And, and then there was this, <laughs> you know, and that was going on for a while. And then, and then, and then I got saved. Hallelujah. Been walking with the Lord ever since, and I, I don't do any of that stuff anymore. I go to church, raise my hand. You know, and I mean, I'm exaggerating, but sometimes that's the, that's the case. Uh, instead of people just saying, hey, once I was blind and now I see, you know, they, they embellish their testimony because, you know, they want to tell you how many terrible things they did. And, and it, it, you know, gets us into this mode of self-denial, that the Christian life is a life of self-denial. 
I knew when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, it, it didn't have to be said, but it was said, man, if you weren't a priest or a nun, I mean, that's the only spiritual way to go. Uh, and thank goodness there was purgatory for the rest of us, you know, uh, because there were certain people who were really spiritual because of their life of self-denial, and then there were the rest of us, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's built into us that we need to, you know, have a self-denial. But denying self, now that's totally different. Because I know God loves me and has proven it at the cross, any boundaries that I find he has set for me, I can trust are for my own good. Make no mistake, the Christian life has boundaries. There are do's and don'ts, maybe not as many as we think uh, and not the, the ones that we think, uh, but th there are boundaries in the Christian life. But I gladly submit to the Lord and I find true satisfaction and genuine joy within those boundaries rather than pursuing the world's happiness which often does lead me into slavery to sin and self. We often use the example of parenting since we're talking about our Heavenly Father. You as a good parent set decent, realistic boundaries for your children so that they can enjoy life to the fullest and grow and uh, you know, not fall off the rails, as it were. And, and when you have problems is when they go beyond those boundaries and they're acting stupid and, you know, they, they don't know what's good for them and things like that. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. He, if he tells us something, then it's, it's for your own good. It's not just to crush you or to keep you from having any joy. It's so that you can know joy and not just the world's temporary happiness that's going to come crashing down on you. Now, second, he says, you take up your cross. Criminals who had been sentenced to death took up their cross beam and it was on their shoulders as they walked to the place of crucifixion. And so this is what that phrase means. This is how you take up your cross, literally. It suggested to onlookers, to those who saw the criminal on his way to the cross, that the government had passed judgment on that individual and that they were in total submission to that government. Taking up your cross, spiritually speaking, is choosing to yield the members of your body to the Spirit of God rather than to your flesh. It involves discipline and sacrifice, but that's always for our benefit, not for our detriment. It makes us better. It is submitting to the government of God in my life and doing what he tells me to do, no more, no less. As a Christian, I want to die every day to sin and to self. I can die as I submit to the guidance and the governing of God. I, I mean, you know, don't you have episodes with your flesh? Don't you have sin that you commit and you think, man, why can't I just die to that? You want to if you're a genuine Christian. You, you don't want to keep living that same life over and over again. And you can as you take up your cross, as you simply submit to God. And then third, Jesus said, follow me. Now that struck me as odd because earlier he said, if you desire to come after me, which can be translated, follow me. So what he's saying is, if you desire to follow me, then follow me. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think Jesus was saying we need to quit holding back, stop waiting, and engage. You know those exhortations I mentioned earlier, like presenting your body a living sacrifice and submitting to God. Heed them, do them, follow them, and you'll be following him. I read a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis that captures this idea. He was talking about 
repentance, and he said, and I quote, as long as he doesn't convert it into action, it does not matter how much a man thinks about his repentance, end quote. In other words, thinking about spiritual things doesn't accomplish anything. You have to put them into action. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, well, you you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and you know what? Really do that. Put that into action. When you read something in the word of God and I'm speaking to you, then put that into action. Don't just pray about it. Don't just think about it. Don't just wonder if that's applicable to you. He says, put some, uh, you know, uh, where the rubber meets the road kind of a thing, as J. Vernon McGee would say. Just do it. Don't assume that because you're a Christian, you are a disciple in every area. You're not. I'm not. Part of my daily walk is to discover where I'm holding back. Verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In those areas I'm holding back, you might say I'm trying to save certain aspects of my life, maybe because I'm afraid to give them to the Lord. After all, he might want me to do something I don't want to. That's just one reason I might be trying to save my life. I know people seem to have a notion that as soon as you express something you don't want to do for God, he has some kind of spiritual surveillance system in place and he makes you do it. And so, you know, I don't know how many people I've read, it's common to say, I said I'd never come to Hanford and then God made me go there. And I'm kind of glad that he did. You know, I mean, there's, people have these testimonies. I, this is the last place on earth I would ever want to go, but God sent me there and it worked out okay. You know, and, and so we get the idea. I know what people are trying to say. You know, they're trying to say that God's leading is an amazing thing, but they make it sound like God wants you to, to he's always looking to make you do stuff you don't want to do rather than give you the desires of your heart. Now, in order to give you the desires of your heart, you may have to do some things or go some places or something that, that maybe you wouldn't have chosen on your own, but it will reveal itself later on. And so, uh, for whatever reason, there's lots of different reasons, but we tend to want to save parts of our life, holding them back from God because we don't fully trust him or we're afraid or something like that. You've probably heard it said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The Bible puts it like this. It says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's from Ephesians 2.10. Losing your life for God is the only way you find the good things he planned for you long ago. All that being said, if your thought life and your activities, and your investments, if everything in your life could be summarized on a spiritual profit and loss statement, what would it look like? Hopefully it wouldn't look like our checkbooks at the end of the month, all in red, right? We, we wanna have something on the positive side, and so let's make the commitments necessary so that the bottom line of our lives shows constant spiritual gains day by day. Now, the rest of the verses, how will your P&L reward? It's pretty important to any discussion of discipleship to emphasize that the best is yet to come. I choose discipleship now knowing that my commitments to Jesus will be rewarded when I leave this temporary timeline for eternity. Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of what they could expect in the future. Verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. You know those works you did for Jesus when you could have been pursuing things of the world? 
The Lord is keeping a record of them in order to reward you, and you have to believe that uh, as a disciple. You won't realize your full reward until the Lord returns. But when he does, you're gonna go one-on-one with him in a review of your works with the goal of his showering you with rewards. Now, some Christians minimize receiving rewards since it seems we're only going to offer them back up to the Lord. And it it almost seems like a more spiritual position to take, like, well, I just serve the Lord. I don't do it for any rewards because, you know, I'm super spiritual. And we're only gonna throw them back at the Lord anyway, so they're meaningless. Well, think about that scene. I think, you know, one of them occurs in the book of the Revelation when the church is gathered around the throne. And it says that we fall down and throw our crowns at his feet. Do you wanna be the one guy that hasn't... Gene, you got an extra crown? Anybody got a crown I can throw? You know, you want at least one. If you had one, you could go real slow. While everybody else is like, you know, while, while Billy Graham is unloading truckloads of crowns, you can, you can get yours flying like a Frisbee or something. But at least you've got something. I mean, seriously, this is really going to happen? I mean, do you want to be the one guy that says, hey, I'm, I'm so spiritual, I, I have nothing. It all burned up. On the other hand, the Lord says, I want, I'm coming with my reward in my hand. It delights the Lord to give you gifts. A lot of you, I mean, I like to get gifts, but some of you actually like to give gifts, and you'd rather give gifts than get gifts. I, need, I am not there yet. You need to pray for me. But, but people who like to give gifts, it gives them joy. It blesses them. It delights them. And so I want to earn rewards to give my Lord delight. Don't you want to bring a delight to the heart of the Lord? for all that he's done for you? Do you wanna really stand before the Lord and say, yeah, I, I really, you know, can we get this, you know, judgment thing over with and I wanna see my mansion because I, I didn't worry about any rewards. Well, what a jerk. Probably not the word that the Lord will use, but you know, and so we want to think in terms of rewards. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 28, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's no mystery as to what Jesus meant by this. You see it immediately in what we call chapter 17, which you understand chapter and verse breaks are not in the original manuscripts that we have. Um, You know, they were added so that we could read it easier. Uh, And so a lot of people say, well, what did he mean? Did he mean this? Did he mean we're gonna establish the kingdom now? No, he said, some of you guys are gonna see something glorious before you die, and they do in chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. We have no idea where this was even today. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's an outward change that comes from within. Jesus wasn't reflecting some light. He was radiating light. He was light. For a brief moment on that undisclosed mountain, the deity of Jesus Christ shone forth through his body. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, this verse by itself is a wealth of information. It teaches, for example, that saints have continuous conscious existence in the afterlife. It cancels out anything like soul sleep or reincarnation. It just eliminates that. Uh, Moses had died some 1,400 years earlier. Elijah had been taken into heaven in the chariot of fire some 900 years earlier, but they were conscious and alive as Moses and Elijah 
uh, and were able to appear with Jesus. And so no reincarnation, no soul sleep, uh, every, you know, you go on. Plus, um, they were easily recognized by Peter, James, and John. Now, as I said, these guys had died over a century uh, or over 900 years earlier, 1,400 years earlier, they were off the earth. So how did they recognize them? Maybe they had name tags, I don't know. They, they might have, you know, NASCAR-type jackets on, you know, that, with their sponsorship. But I think they just knew who they were. They intuitively knew it was Moses and Elijah. Uh, we will recognize others in heaven. And, and that's a real comfort. People ask that sometimes, you know, what, what will we be like in heaven? Will I know my loved ones? Will they know me? Uh, and the answer is yes. Why these two guys? Well, for one thing, they close out the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in the last chapter, in chapter four, in verses four and five, you read, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so the Jews you know, put together Moses and Elijah as having something to do with the end times. They were the last two characters God mentioned in the Old Testament. And they represented the law and the prophets. You hear this sometimes, New Testament scholars will say, well, you know, Moses represented the law and Elijah the prophets. And you think, well, where did they get that from? Well, you get it from Malachi because it says it's the law of Moses and Elijah the prophet. The law and the prophets is a summary of the entire Old Testament uh, and so what this is telling us symbolically, when you see Moses and Elijah together talking with Jesus, it's signifying that in Jesus, everything is being fulfilled. All of the law, all of the prophets, everything God had to say is now fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The transfiguration gives a glimpse of Jesus at his second coming to the earth when he comes in glory to establish the kingdom. Verse four, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let's make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, again, people can't wait to criticize Peter. It just, I know he did some crazy things, but this is not a, a situation to criticize him, and here's why. What he said was off base, but at least he had a reason for it. Jews constructed tabernacles and they camped outdoors in them during the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast both commemorated their wilderness wanderings as well as proclaiming their hope in the coming kingdom on the earth. And so Peter's suggestion was at least grounded in some understanding of Jewish history. You have to remember that no matter how many times Jesus told these guys he was not going to establish the kingdom at this time, even just minutes before he ascended into heaven, they were still saying, Lord, are you going to now establish the kingdom? Because it was so burned into their, their spiritual DNA. So you're Peter, James and John. You're up on this mountain with Jesus. Sure, he's told you he's gonna be crucified and die and all of this, but you're, you're trying to process that. All of a sudden, you see Jesus in his glory shining brighter than the sun, Moses and Elijah, kingdom time. This has got to be the establishing of the kingdom. What else could it be? Jesus is going to come down from that mountain and we are going to rule. 
And so Peter's like, yeah, let's, let's have the Feast of Tabernacles right now. Let's get that over with so that we can get this thing going. And so I, you know, he just, sure, he didn't understand, but at least he didn't understand within the proper framework. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of that cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The bright cloud was what we call the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory of God. It was the presence of God with the Jews in their exodus. It had filled the tabernacle and later the temple. You realize that for a time in the temple, in the tabernacle, there was this Shekinah glory of God. It actually dwelt there. It's crazy. Uh, During the siege by Babylon against Jerusalem, Ezekiel records the departure of that glory from the temple. It's, it's really sad. It, it leaves the temple and goes out through the outer court and it leaves Jerusalem and, and because the glory of the Lord is departing. It returned at Jesus' birth during the announcement to the shepherds guarding their flocks at night and here it was again with Jesus. Here him reminds us that Jesus is not just another great religious person. It isn't that, well, I've learned a little bit from Moses and a little bit from Elijah and now a little bit from Jesus. No, he is the son of man, the son of the living God. He is the unique God-man that we need to heed. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Fear and worship are not incompatible. Uh, In his Narnia book, C.S. Lewis captures this in an exchange between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the children about Aslan the lion. He says, Uh, Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. As a believer, you're safe for eternity, but life can be anything but safe as a disciple. It goes without saying that walking with the Lord puts a bullseye on you. If you meet Jesus after death and you're not a believer, Jesus is certainly not safe. It will be too late for your soul to be saved. Verse seven, but Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now we're drawn to the word touched. The God-man, transfigured before them, revealed in his glory, touched them. God touching human flesh. It prompted one commentator to exclaim, the touch of his manhood was more reassuring to poor flesh and blood than the blaze of the Godhead. We concentrate so much when terrible things are happening to others or in the world or even to ourselves on God's power and his might and his transcendence and why isn't God, when all the while Jesus is standing there with us, touching us as it were in his manhood, saying, I understand what you're going through. Hang in there, it's almost over, I'm coming. And we need that touch. And rather than default to his amazing power, of course he could stop what's happening. If he doesn't, then he wants to go through it with us and teach us things and love us in ways that we would never understand uh, otherwise. I'm glad that our God and Savior understands what it's like to be human. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
whatever you're struggling with today, let him touch you and look beyond to your reward. There will be a final P&L for all of us. Again, I stress, let's have a lot in the uh, profit column. Dr. Charles Ryrie is a favorite theologian of mine. He has this to say about discipleship. The Lord Jesus, the God-man, offers salvation freely, and he can do so because he is God who became man. The same Lord Jesus, through many New Testament writers, asks those who have believed to submit to his mastery over their lives. Some do to a great extent. No one does it fully and always. Some do to a lesser extent. But he was, is, and always will be Lord, whether he is acknowledged as the God-man Savior or whether he is acknowledged as Master of the believer's life. I think you understand that. And if your reaction to that is, whew, now I can go on living a mediocre spiritual life concentrating on accumulating more and more things of the world, well, then you've completely missed the point. And knowing you guys the way I do, I know nobody really thinks that way. At least you don't set out to think that way. Sometimes we get off track. We, we don't think deeply about what the Lord is showing us. And we live that way, but nobody, nobody is saying, oh, thanks, Lord, that I can be saved and, and be totally uncommitted in most areas of my life. I mean, you know, th that's just not you and I. We need to get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord and be like the prophet Isaiah, who when he saw the Lord said, here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray.